the basis of, of the church, it's a community. Without the community, there's no church. And so what we're doing here is understand, if you could hear this, we're not building a church. We're building a community. And so we can't build a church if we're not building a community. And that's kind of going to tie us into this series that we've been in. That's why we started this series called Life Together. We started this series, Life Together, because what we want to do is not so much build a Sunday event or an awesome experience. What we're doing, essentially, is we're building a community, in some ways rebuilding a community here at Woven. And this community is being built up with people like you and me, and this book has been helping us to really examine what, what it means to be a community together. So today, we find ourselves in chapter 5. In the fifth chapter of this book, we've been jumping around, but this fifth chapter is about communion and confession. And what we've done is we've coincided this chapter with today, the first Sunday of every month for us here at Woven is Communion Sunday. And so we're talking about communion today, but there's another side to communion. Now, some of you might have heard this before uh, You've heard that if you have a problem with somebody, if there is a conflict with another person, before you come to the communion table, make sure to make it right. Whatever conflict you have with this person, make sure before you come, make it right. That actually comes from Matthew chapter 5. That's what it says. If you are coming to, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and you have something against your brother, leave your offering there. First, make it right. Reconcile. And so really what we have is this connection between communion and making things right, confession. And the question is, how do we do that? And I've wondered that for, I've wondered that for years. So all the times that we've had communion, that I've administered communion, I've wondered, okay, what's this going to be like? Is this going to be like you know, people are coming up, you know, especially in a smaller church setting, and two people who don't like each other in front of everybody are going to come together and hash it out and hug, hug it out and everything. I mean, it's kind of a spectacle. And so in that sense, I, I'm not sure how, how that would play out. What does that look like? How does confession happen before communion? And then I realized, actually, confession is already happening at Woven. Confession is already happening. Now, in our noonday examines or on our Saturday community groups, in the last few months alone... I've seen more breakthrough to community through confession than I've seen in several years. People have been confessing hard stuff. There have been people, there have been very tearful moments. There have been people who've been coming out even to our noonday examine who are not, um, wouldn't even call themselves Christian and yet find themselves having a very profound experience. Even Sunday school has been really, really awesome in that regard. We're seeing people confess and getting vulnerable. Understand, when we talk about confession, we're not just talking about sin, but we're talking about vulnerability and openness. People are opening up about really hard stuff. So in that regard, confession and communion, it's hap it is happening here at Woven. Little flock, you're learning to be vulnerable with each other. I'm learning to be vulnerable. We, we together as we learn to be vulnerable, come together and we can take communion. And so in the midst of a culture of vulnerability, and that's really what we're building here, a culture of vulnerability and confession, what I want to do today is talk about how do we confess to one another or how do we listen to each other? You know, is it something like, you know, hey, I got to get something off my shoulders, so I'm just, you 
just going to dump on you. Well, how do we talk? How do we listen? How do we build community with that vulnerability? So what I want to talk about today, and you'll see this in your notes, is how to listen well. How to listen well. How can I listen to your confession well? How can I listen to your vulnerability and your hurt, your pain? How can I listen to you well? And to help us, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4 and 5. And what we see here in these two chapters is the picture of somebody who is a good listener. And that's not explicit. What we really have is Jesus, the ideal priest, the high priest. But really, what is a priest but someone who listens? What is a priest today but somebody, somebody who listens well? And so we want to look at Jesus, who is the model, and learn how we also can listen well. We want to learn how we also can listen to each other well. And so you're going to see in your bulletin, in your notes, three, um, three steps to listening well that I'm going to highlight as we make our way through Hebrews chapter 4 and 5. So if you will, look, look with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. And uh, you, can, you can look that up online, or you can just close your eyes and listen, or even keep your eyes open. Now, for us here at Woven, um, we really are very much about sanctifying Monday to Friday, sanctifying culture, and so deliberately I've chosen some artwork, some artwork to appear on the screen, so as you listen to the word of the Lord, the art will fire your imagination. So listen to the word of the Lord as I read from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 to chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. No one takes this honor to themselves, but receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ didn't glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, God who said to Christ, you are my son, Today I have begotten you, just as he also says in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all of those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So children, how many of you understood what we just read? Or youth? I know that we have young people with us today. It's a hard passage. It's a hard passage, and I'm going to walk us through it, starting with this first step of how we can listen to each other well. So again, this coming Wednesday, we have our examine, or on Saturday, community group. Uh, you're sharing your story, or somebody's sharing their story. How can you listen well? The first step in listening well is sympathize. Sympathize. Sympathy. Hebrews chapter 4, verse, 4, verse 15 talks about this. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Now, I know that right now, these days, empathy is the hot word. Everybody's talking about empathy. Um, appropriately so. We're in Houston, Texas. The guru of empathy stuff, empathy training, is Brene Brown, if you've heard that name. She teaches right here at U of H. But the word that's used here is not empathy or empathize. The word that's used here is sympathize. Now, the, the, the Greek there, sympatheo. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympatheo, to sympathize with us in our weakness. That word sympatheo, sum means with, pathos, patheo is pathos, with pathos, or pathos with, suffering with somebody. So sympathy is essentially about suffering or pathos with somebody. If somebody is having a bad day, you experience their suffering with them. You commiserate. You have compassion on them. So really, the base of listening is sympathy. But, but, listen to this. What it says in verse 15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but... We have one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. But. That one word, but, I think what it does is we introduce us, it introduces us to something bigger than just sympathy. In other words, what it's saying is we have a priest that can sympathize. Oh, that must hurt. I'm so sorry. That must be painful. I'm so sorry for your experience. But actually, he says, no, no, no. We have one that goes beyond sympathy to knowing the taste of that blood in your mouth. Like if you've ever been smashed and you know that feeling, that taste, the mixture of iron and, and, and something and the chemicals, we have one that doesn't just sympathize, we have one that knows the taste, one who knows what this suffering is all about firsthand. In other words, we move from sympathy to identification. Sympathy to identification. And what we have in Christ is somebody that not only says, I'm so sorry, but we have one who says, I'm so sorry. I know exactly what that feels like. I know what that feels like. So it's kind of like this. I prepared this analogy um, with two people in our church in mind. But it's kind of like somebody is having chest pains. Whoops. Did I just break it? We have somebody who's having chest pains. And these chest pains prompt them to go see a cardiologist. And they go see a cardiologist, and the cardiologist says... Oh dear, that must really, really feel terrible. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And when you hear that, how does that make you feel? It makes you feel good. It makes you feel better. Now, I, I want to call out two people. I was hoping they'd be here today. They're not. But if you're watching online, we do have two cardiologists that are, that are members, actually, of this congregation. And I'm going to call them out. You know, here's the thing. We don't want to call out the bad stuff, but we want to call out the good stuff about our people. And um, they probably wouldn't boast about themselves, but I want you guys that are present to know that John Sanu and Ju Kim, 
Both of them are award-winning and renowned for their patient care. They're award-winning and renowned for their patient care. And they didn't, they're not, you know, they probably don't like me sharing this, but that's part of my practice for a church that's sanctifying Monday to Friday. I want to highlight the good work, the good work that people are doing throughout the week. So much so that I even heard, um, I, heard from, I heard from Kathy, from your husband, that when he was studying at Johns Hopkins, I don't know how he bumped into John Sanu, but in his mind, John was the paradigm of good bedside manner. Good bedside manner. And then when he came to church here in Houston and he discovered John's here, it was like, wow, I get to go to church with this person. So what you have is somebody that is sympathetic. People that really do a good job that are even award-winning in their care. But the question that I wish I could ask, I wish they were here, John and Jew. The question I want to ask is, John and Jew, even if you're watching online, have you yourself ever had any heart trouble? And how would that change your patient care? How would that change your practice? You know, it's one thing to say, that must be terrible, I'm so sorry. It's another thing to say, that must be terrible, I'm so sorry, I know exactly what that feels like, and I know how to fix it. Because I know what that feels like, I know what you can do. I know the things that you can do. I can help you. You see, essentially what we're talking about here in Hebrews is this basic Christian doctrine, the fill in the blank, under that first heading, sympathize. The fill in the blank, the doctrine that we're teaching here, I'm not going to give you the theology speak, but I'm going to tell you straightforward. Jesus ain't scared of your humanness. Jesus is not scared of my humanness. Believe me, there are times where you feel like maybe what I'm doing is irreverent or maybe this is not holy enough for God or for God's house. But the thing is, Jesus is not somebody that just says, I sympathize, but somebody that identifies. He's not scared of all of our humanness. He understands it with all of its smells and odors and with all of its... He understands and identifies fully. He knows what the cold metal table feels like. That's the uniqueness of the Christian religion. The uniqueness of the Christian religion is we have one, we have a day, we, we have a God who doesn't just sympathize, but can fully identify, and because he identifies, he can fix it. He can fix it. He can heal it. It's probably a better word. Because he identifies with everything we've gone through, he can heal it as well. This is how this works out when it comes to listening. This is how it works. I'm going to give you another story. And this story um, is kind of going to, it's going to be an ongoing illustration for the rest of today's talk. Um, it's something that happened to me personally at the start of last, this past week. And it was very painful, very painful. Let me drink some water before I get into it. So something happened to me um, at the early part of this week that I'm going to kind of use as a running illustration that I think also illustrates how listening and sympathy works and identifying. So on a Monday, Monday, um, I had just come home from church and throughout the last seven days, we had a lot of things that we were working on for Woven, um, you know, I, 
aside from aside from just kind of the day in and day out of of, of my duties, preparing sermons and Sunday school, and there, there were some things that we were working on. And on top of that, we had annual meeting. Annual meeting, you know, I know I'm like a cool cucumber, like you know, I have no sweat, but really, it's it stresses me out. And on Monday after annual meeting and after all these stuff stuff that was going on, I came home on Monday afternoon like like the walking dead. I mean, I, I was so tired. And I came home, and I said, I got to take a nap before the kids come home. Um, but first, I need to stop by Walmart, because I needed a watch battery. Of all things, I needed a watch, some, some, one dinky little thing. Quick, in and out, get my watch battery. I'm going to go home and take a nap before the kids come home from school. And uh, I, it went down. The minute I pulled into the Walmart parking lot, Already, I was in this heightened, exhausted, emotional state, right? And, uh, you know, irritation was already there. And I saw a pile of garbage in the middle of the parking. There was one spot, and there was garbage there. And I couldn't park, and so I kind of, you know, I was irritated, so I just kind of pulled the car in next to the garbage bag, and I was like, (laughs) walking in, and I'm like, oh, the garbage is still there. Somebody else is going to run it over. It's going to spill. It's going to become a mess. So I took it upon myself that it was my civic duty to go over and to pick up the garbage bag and at least just remove it from the parking lot. And I noticed that this garbage bag, it was transparent, so I could tell it was soiled on the inside, but it was also soiled and greasy on the outside. So I found the one dry spot, and I picked it up like this, right? And I'm grumbling to myself, and I'm walking, and uh, I see a Walmart employee. And the Walmart employee is walking out and looks at me and then just keeps going. And I'm like, this is your job. It's not my job. So I take the bag, and I'm frustrated, and I see the garbage can right there by the entrance. And I just somewhat contemptuously, I just toss the garbage bag over there and says, that's not my job. Right? So I just toss the bag. I put the, let's say this is the garbage. Well, that's a communion table. But, you know, like there's a garbage. And then I just toss the, I toss the, toss the, the bag, soiled garbage just next to the. I go in. I'm looking for the watch battery. I'm looking for the watch battery. And as I'm looking for it, all of a sudden, I hear someone right behind me say, I saw what you did. And I turn around, and there's a lady standing in front of me, just some random suburban lady. Uh, not an employee or anything. She's just somebody, you know, who had this I gotcha look on her face. And she was red-faced, and her finger was jabbing the air in front of me. I saw what you did. And I was like, excuse me? And she says, I saw what you did. They got it on camera. I said, are you talking about the garbage? And uh, we had this back and forth, and I, I tried to explain to her, no, 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 lady. I, I took the garbage out of the street. I did the right thing. I took it out of the parking lot, and I put it in the front. And she says, but they got you on camera. And I'm thinking, okay, this is going south. You know, It sounds to me like you're making an accusation of me that's unjust. And then... She did something that makes your blood boil. She said, I'm not accusing you. I'm not accusing you. But they got you on camera. So I'm thinking to myself, and I said this a couple of times, that sounds to me like an accusation. No, 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 I'm not accusing you. But they got you on camera. She kept saying that. So I got paranoid. So I went over to management, and I said, listen, your employees are not picking up the garbage. I picked up the garbage for you. I put it over there. You have me on camera. And I was all flustered and everything. And then I realized in that moment, why am I talking to them? They don't care if I'm on camera. The real beef that's going down here is with this lady 
that really just is, 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 is doing this is making me crazy. So I, I, I wanted, listen, typically I turn the other cheek. I know I'm your pastor. We're not perfect. But I said, I got to make this right. And so I, I went down each aisle. It's a small, it's a neighborhood Walmart. It's not like, you know, Walmart Supercenter, right? It's just a neighborhood Walmart. I went down each aisle. Lady booked it. She booked it. And I was, I was sitting there, like, my eyes started twitching like this, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, um, something bad just happened. And, guys, I, I couldn't sleep that night. Like, it, it, I, I, I kept seeing her red face really, you know, feeling like she was justified and just pointing out everything. I felt so misunderstood. And I felt um, so, um, I felt crazy. There, there's a word, if you've heard of it, it's called gaslighting. I felt gaslighted. Gaslighting is when you, you, you make somebody believe that, they've, they've sh- that they deserve their shame or that they've done something. So I felt crazy. Gaslighting makes you crazy when, when somebody turns the tables back on you. And I felt, it's crazy making. So I'm feeling crazy and I'm feeling all kinds of frustrated. And what I did is what I, it's something that just for me is a thing. I have good friends here in Houston outside of this church. Um, they are also my accountability partners and we just talk about everything. And I called a couple of them. And I called my friends and I told them, hey, this happened. And this, this it just went down. And, and, and their expression to me, their response, no one said to me, you're imagining this. No one said to me, well, get over it. No one said to me, well, did you do something wrong? No one said, every person said to me on the phone, that really, I don't know if I can use this, that really sucks. That's what they said. Every single person said, that's terrible. I can even see it in some of your expressions. That's really, really bad. And that made me feel somewhat better. Now, I'll tell you what would have made me feel worse. What would have made me feel worse is if they told me, Wayne, you're imagining it. Nothing happened. That definitely would have made me even more crazy. So, the first step to listening is sympathy. 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 And there's another dimension to this as well that is really, really unique and interesting. Um, So, I mean, when she was doing this, um, when she was saying this to me, there was even a sense that I felt like, you're probably saying this to me because I'm a little Asian man, um, and I must be an easy target. Now, she didn't say this. She didn't articulate it this way. But what it felt like to me, what it really undeniably felt like to me was almost this sense and I know, I know Katie is kind of inundated with Asians and South Asians. Um, and the lady happened to be Caucasian. It felt scolding, and it felt like she was saying, this is not how we do things in America. That's what it felt like. And it really, really hurt. I felt misjudged. And the thing is, some of my accountability partners, some of my friends that I talk to, they're also, they're also Caucasian, they're white. And when I, was, when I was telling this story, what I found to be a very interesting experience was when I shared that piece, when I said it felt like, you know, I was being, you know, judged for my ethnicity or something, that it almost felt like, you know, you're, you know I, I'm telling you this because I can, I can speak down to this little Asian man. And my white friends, their response was, oh, man, that's really, that really sucks. 
And the response was even one, like, I can see how that's upsetting. I mean, if I were in your shoes, I would be upset too. So there was a tremendous validating that happened, even from the sympathy that I received from my friends who happened to be white. But there wasn't that final step of identification. Because you, you, you don't fully understand unless that connection is made, oh, I've been through that too. Because honestly, that, this kind of thing happens to me periodically. It happens to me periodically um, here in Houston. From time to time, you know, I feel, you know, it might not be explicit, but I feel somewhat judged, uh, maybe categorized or misunderstood. Uh, you know, it's, it's a thing. It's a thing that... that, that that I, I experienced, but, but this began to move to identification because here's what happened. I found that at night when I shut my eyes, when I closed my eyes on Monday night, I could not sleep because the first thing I saw was somebody's red face yelling at me. And in my mind, you know, Monday night, I don't know if, if my family remembers this, <clears throat> I tried to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. I tossed and turned because I was replaying, I wish I said this. I wish I had done that. I wish I had addressed this. I wish at least I had made this clear. And when I shared that experience with my friends, at that moment, and even with other people here who've heard the story, at that moment, they said, that I know. I know exactly what that feels like. Because I don't know how many of you here are quick on your feet with your words. Like, I don't know how many of you here are able to come, up, come back with a, you know, I'm not, and most people aren't, especially when you're cornered. And the thing is, everybody, I think everybody knows. I mean, do you know what that feels like? I know that feeling. I wish I said that. That's where sympathy became identification. And so what we have in Christ is somebody that not only sympathizes with our humanness. Oh, it must be so hard being human. But we have somebody who identifies and says, I know exactly what that feels like. And, and I can make it better. I can help you because I know how this feels. And this gets to our second step. So the first step is sympathizing. But the second step that we can practice, and really I'm not preaching because I want you to get ideas. Friends, I want you to practice this in your community groups. I want you to practice this in our examines. The second step is guide and make aware. Guide and make aware. You see, as people identified with me, one of my friends was able to say, Wayne, not only do I know how that feels, but there is some insights, there are some things that I have, I think that can help you to sleep at night. Do you mind if I share some feedback? Guide and make aware. You see, in verse 2 of chapter 5, what we see is Jesus is able to deal gently with you and I. Nowhere does it say, get over it. You're imagining it. Nowhere does it say, it's all in your head, or just turn the other cheek. You know, one of the worst things to say, listen to this, one of the worst things to say to somebody in, in, in ground zero of their pain is say, you should just forgive them. They're not ready for that. So the thing is, sympathize. Deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset, Jesus is also beset with weakness. Therefore, he's able to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Now you're getting your hackles up because you're saying, I'm not ignorant. 
I'm not misguided. And that, I think, shows that there's two disclaimers, two things I want to say before I get any further on this second heading. You know, oh, oh, I feel so bad for you. I want to show you sympathy. But let me tell you where you're misguided. Let me show you your blind spots. Hang on, hang on. Two disclaimers. The first disclaimer is don't give it if they're not ready. Don't give it if they're not ready. Don't give guidance in a word. Don't move to step two. Don't move to step two if you sense that somebody's not ready. If they're not ready, live at step one. If they need 20 hours, 20 days, 20 weeks of sympathy, I'm not saying you have to give it to them. I'm saying you don't have permission to move to step two, and that's it. You can't foist onto somebody what they're not ready for. So if they're not ready, you can't move forward. Now, there is such a thing as wanting too much sympathy, and that's another story. It's possible to want too much. But the point is, if somebody's not ready, don't give it. And the second disclaimer is, if you are not ready, if you are not ready, don't give it. If you're not ready to give guidance or awareness, don't give it. We can't give what we don't already have. It's kind of like, if I can, if I can share, I remember when I was in high school, when I was in high school, I mean, it feels like I've been in ministry my entire life. And when I was in high school, I remember talking to this girl, and it wasn't romantic or anything, um, but she was sharing with me her life story and her family troubles. And she was looking for sympathy. And what I did was I moved immediately to step two, and I said, when I was your age, and I proceeded to give her guidance and awareness, and you know what the thing is? She was older than me. <laughs> I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. So the two disclaimers is if they're not ready, don't give it. If I'm not ready, don't give it. Don't give it if I'm not ready. Don't give it if I'm not ready. So those two disclaimers, I think, are important because moving into guidance and awareness, here's what happens. Again, if you are ready, if they are ready, you know, I don't know if we're ever ready. Let me tell you this. Let me kind of launch into this angle. How do you know if you're ready to give guidance? How do you know if you're ready to give somebody spiritual instruction? You see, there's a lot of problems here. Bonifer, I think he, he, cap, he catches this really well. He says, the sinister danger and disastrous misuse of the confessional for the exercise of spiritual domination of souls. So when, when we're not ready and we're using confession as a means to, to kind of say, it makes me feel better about myself. The domination of souls. It's a sinister danger and it's a disastrous misuse of that relationship. How do I know that I'm not ready? If giving you advice makes me somehow feel superior or makes me feel like I'm better, probably you're, I'm probably not ready to give advice. If somehow I feel like, you know, it makes me, you can call me your mentor now or something like that. I'm probably not ready to give advice. Advice is better given from a posture of service. Even if it's a chore or, or advice or making aware. You know, I remember probably um, the most important advice I received when we first started Woven was actually from one of you. It was from somebody in this congregation. Actually, that person is probably watching online. And I remember this person took me out one night. And we were hanging out late. 
And he shared with me. He gave me guidance and awareness. This is one of our woven people. And showed me some of the blind spots that I had. And you got the sense that this was not somebody that's saying, um, you know, I, I maneuver myself so that I can be on the board, so that I can have spiritual oversight. There wasn't any, this was somebody that as a friend said, Wayne, as a leader, you have some blind spots. And I'm not saying this really, I don't want to tell you this. But for the sake of our whole congregation, I think it's good for you to be aware of some of these things. So there was a sense that this person was not doing it to prop himself up. There was a sense that this was a genuine service. It was a giving, and it was received. And the result was it was positive. You see, when you're guiding somebody and you're doing it as an act of giving, I think that is a better place to be in, as opposed to, let me tell you what I think you should do with your life. I remember hearing recently about um, a man uh, who started a business. He was a successful businessman. And he was sacrificing his time. Business people, you might understand this dynamic. He was sacrificing his time to coach and to help younger entrepreneurs in their business. And as he was coaching them, one of the younger entrepreneurs actually stood him up, stood him up for a coffee meeting. And he phoned this younger entrepreneur, this business owner, and he said, you know, I hope you understand, an hour of my time costs thousands of dollars. So I don't want you to misunderstand this dynamic. I'm, I'm giving you, I'm giving you an hour of my time. I think this is a posture where you have the permission this is a posture where it's not an act of, oh yeah, I want to be called the one that taught you everything. I am the one that's sacrificially giving. So from that posture of giving, so we're turning the dynamic a little bit here. When it's actually giving, that then becomes a better place to guide and make aware. So real quick, guiding and making aware, where does this come from? It says Jesus can deal gently he can condescend. He can deal and work with those of us that are ignorant and misguided. That word ignorant. Ignorant. Ignorant, the idea conveyed there is that you, you, you just don't know. You're just not aware. You have a blind spot. When Jesus dies on the cross, just as he's dying, what does he pray to the Father on behalf of all the people? Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They don't know why they're doing what they're doing. They don't know how to do anything different. They don't know for what reason or what childhood woundedness. They don't know where they're coming from, but they're just doing it. Father, forgive them in the ultimate act of really understanding. You see, ignorance, you can have compassion on that because there's blindness behind it. There's just sheer blindness. There's, there's inexperience behind it. There's sometimes Family patterns, there's things that we just don't know. Jesus can deal gently with the ignorant, but he can bring awareness. You know that you're doing this. You know that this is something you're repeatedly doing. Awareness. And I'm not telling you this because it makes me feel better. In fact, it costs an hour of my time, according to this business person. It costs thousands of dollars. I'm not doing this. I'm doing this just to help you, to help you, make, to help you see your blind spots. And then it also says misguided. Jesus can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. That word misguided, 
when you're guided, I think misguided actually is a good translation here because the sentiment is when you're guided, when somebody says, here, let me take you by the hand, the young people, and let me take you to a bad place. That's guidance. It's misguidance, but it's guidance nonetheless. It's leading people the wrong way. So the corrective measure to misguidance is quite simply guidance, guidance. And the time I can tell you that I spent, you know, even this morning Sunday school with people that are adults, but even with our youth, summer camp, sometimes I'll sit and listen to kids. It's all an act of simply guiding somebody. You take them by the hand and you guide them. So we can make aware and we can guide. This is the second, this is the second step. This is the second step when it comes to listening well. And the fill in the blank here underneath the second heading that I want to offer is simply say this. If you sense that maybe they're ready, if you sense that maybe they're ready and you sense that you're not, you're not this is not something that's a self-ego inflating kind of thing. If you sense that maybe they're ready, then simply say, this is the fill in the blank, may I offer some feedback? May I offer some feedback? And that's it. That's what we do. And if they say, no, I'm not ready for feedback, that's it. It's clear. But if they say yes, then you can move on to step two, guide and make aware. But they, in many ways, hold the key. They're the ones that have to be ready. Now let me kind of get back. Let me get back to my original story. So here I am. I'm left holding the bill. That's what I felt like. After that whole crazy Walmart incident, and I'm not sleeping at night on Monday night, and I call my friend and I tell him, you know, it, it really, um, I felt misunderstood. I felt like she dumped all of her garbage on me and that I was left holding it in the end. And I felt like I was holding the bill. I was left holding the bill. It's like if you go to a restaurant and 20 people eat and then they all book it and then you're left with a $1,000 bill on you. That's what I felt like. And my friend on the other, on the other end, he laughed. And he said, that is such a good analogy. That, that perfectly describes what just happened, that transaction. And I told him, hey, man, listen, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, I got in sleep last night. I'm not sleeping because I keep thinking about, I wish I said this. I wish I did that. I wish I addressed it. And he tells me, I know exactly what that feels like. I know exactly what that, so he sympathizes, he identifies. In fact, several of my friends got to this point. They say, I know what that feels like. But out of all of my friends, listen to this, only one was able to say, may I offer some feedback? One of them was able to say, I mean, the rest of them, they, they, I mean, they were great listeners. They said, I know how that feels. Some of them said, even, even, even those, um, they said, that must really be hard as, a, as, a, as an Asian person to experience that. I mean, not that it was just about the, the, the race thing, but, you know, you know, the, the sense of identifying with the misunderstanding, but one out of all of my friends, he said, I think I can help you. And I said, talk to me. Because I'm, I can't get out of my head. I can't, I can't take this face out of my... I said, talk to me. And he says, listen, Wayne, you're angry. I'm like, duh. And he says, you seem to be more angry at yourself than this woman. And I'm like, okay. And he starts talking about how you're angry at yourself because you feel like you didn't stand up for yourself, did you? And I'm saying, yeah. 
And then he starts saying, and this is a pattern that goes all the way back deep into your childhood, doesn't it? And I'm like, yeah. And he says, right, right, right. I identify with this because this is something I've gone through too. And these are the things that I've learned. Listen, you're feeling this experience of you've abandoned yourself. You're experiencing abandonment. And I'm like, okay. And he coaches me. He coaches me on some prayers that I can say that move me from craziness to accepting myself and to being reunited with God, even to the point where I can say that I forgive this person. Now, if he had jumped from zero to 60 in no time and said, forgive her, you just need to forgive her, I would have been like, no, no. But what he did was he coached me step by step with sympathy, identification. He asked me if I was open to some feedback, and then he shared and was able to bring me now to this third place, this third step, sending it away. Because after I talked to him, and after I prayed some of the prayers that I prayed, I felt like something was sent away. In fact, by the middle, by the, towards the end of the week, I felt good. I felt centered again. Whereas in the past, this thing, kind of thing would have bothered me. You know, I felt it sent away. And we're going to wrap up with this third and last piece. Now, friends, we're talking about listening to each other. We start off with sympathy. And then, if they're open, we give some feedback. But finally, there's this third and last thing. How do we send it away? How do we send it away? And for this, I close with chapter 5, verse 1. It says, every high priest taken from among people is appointed on behalf of people in things pertaining to God. So priests are chosen somehow to mediate some kind of a transaction uh, in things pertaining to God between people and God. So that's the purpose of priests. And then it says, in order to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So priests live for what purpose or what function do they serve? I mean, we don't really have priests today. We have pastors who preach the word. But actually, there's something more to this idea of priest. The priest, going all the way back to Old Testament times, lived to mediate between people, mankind, and God in order to transact this, this stuff that goes back and forth of sins through the use of sacrifices and gifts. There's some spiritual transaction that's going on. Now, allow me to illustrate real quick. If I'll just illustrate, some of you know me long enough to remember that I used to have a dog. Before the dog that I have now, we had a little Jack Russell Terrier named Fleur. And when you pet my dog... In fact, I think she bit somebody on the butt here once in church at a meeting. And um, the funny thing about Fleur is when you pet her, she had a wiry coat, like, like, like a goat, like a goat. And when you pet her, you know, she felt like a goat. And when I would come home sometimes, if I've had a really bad day, I would just feel icky. And the first thing I would touch, the first thing that would greet me at the door was this little Jack Russell Terrier. I wouldn't even want to touch my kids yet because I felt so icky. And so I would touch my dog on the face and I would caress her and I would kiss her and I would hug her and then she'd, she'd be like, okay, get away. <laughs> and she'd run away, this little Jack Russell Terrier, right? 
two summers ago, my dog died. Right? She started to develop a tumor on her gums, that little bump that eventually became the size of a, a tennis ball. And the tumor, it took up half of her face, and we had to put her down. I'm sorry to talk about this. And I'm not saying that something was transacted, some negative stuff was transacted. I mean, actually, I am. I'm not saying that I caused that, but I mean, better the dog than my children. So it's almost like, uh, my dog became my family's sin eater, if you know what I mean. What I'm saying here is that the transaction that takes place, that priests mediate, it's real. It's real. It's not just something that, oh, hocus pocus, and, you know, do the sign of the cross, and your sins are... There's something that takes place. I know that this is real because I remember on September 11th, 2001, I remember I was on the West Coast at this time. I was in Seattle. But I grew up with the, with the Twin Towers as part of my visual, you know, orientation. And I remember after the towers fell... Everybody across the board, whether you were left or whether you were right, whether you were Democrat or Republican, wherever you stood, everybody was unified in saying, I'm not, we, we can't hold this. Somebody has to be brought into account. I'm not saying we called for war, but I am saying we don't take this lying down. This has to be addressed. Someone has to be brought to justice. And that's instinct I saw to be universal. Everybody has the sense that something that's wrong has to be made right. It has to be made right. We are human beings. We don't just say, oh, well, we lost the Twin Towers. Say lovey. Oh, somebody just dumped on me at the parking lot. <laughs> just forgive her and just move on with my life. No. You feel the garbage. You feel you're holding the bill. And because we're feeling that injustice, somebody is needed to help us mediate this ugliness and this garbage. Somebody needs to help me as a priest. And you see, what this passage in Hebrews talks about is Jesus, who is the ideal priest. But what I want to tell you is this. When you meet on Saturday as a community group, when you meet for the noonday exam on Wednesday, when the moms meet together, when you're doing different activities, you all are priests. If you sympathize, identify, if you have permission to get, give guidance and make aware, you have the spiritual authority to send it away. The friend that I was talking to on the phone, and he helped me, he coached me through some prayers that enabled me to sleep at night. You know what he is? He's not a pastor. He's not a priest. He's a photographer. A professional photographer and a darn good one at that. What does a photographer know about sending it away? Well, what does a stay-at-home mom know? Or what does a business person know? Or what does a high school student know? Or what does a VP of a printing company know? Or what does a mechanic know? Or what does a, a music person know? What does, a, what does an accountant know? You actually know enough. If you understand the experience, that is your permission. 
Boniface says this well. Jesus gave all of his followers the authority to hear confession of sin and to forgive sin in his name. According to Jesus' promise, every Christian can hear the confession of another, and I might add, is able to expiate, to send away the sin. You are all able to do it. It's not experience of life, but experience of the cross that makes you a worthy hearer of confession. So if you identify with somebody and you say, I know what that feels like, you have the spiritual authority, just like Jesus the priest, It's placed on you to send that sin away. You have that capacity. It says so in John 20. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. You can send it away. Now, in conclusion, where do you send it away to? You could send it to your dog. A lot of people do that in a bad way, like they kick the proverbial dog You definitely don't want to send it to your family and to your kids, even though they are, in some ways, the people that are, we hurt the people that are closest to us. You can send it to the last sin eater, the last one, the scapegoat in the wilderness, the little white, you know, you you can send it to the last one, the last sin eater the one who took the tumor and it developed the, the sins of the whole world and died on the cross. Jesus is the last sin eater. Jesus is the last sin eater. The last sin eater. I just want to conclude with one last fill in the blank. That garbage, that garbage bag, I mean, where did that whole Monday incident start for me? It started when somebody dumped their garbage in the wrong place. That's where it started. And then the garbage kept getting dumped in the wrong place. And imagine, had I come home and taken out my frustration on my loved ones, it's like feeding that soiled garbage to the people you love. No, they don't deserve it. Dump the garbage in the right place. That's the last fill in the blank. You can tell when somebody's spilling out all over. The funny thing is, when I was talking to my friends, I was like, man, she really had it in for me. You know, and then she drove off and disappeared, probably feeling great and like, I did a good deed. And I'm stuck feeling completely misunderstood. Everybody told me, I doubt it. I have a feeling she's having a really bad day. I have a feeling she's having a really bad life. You just had to eat her garbage. I said, I'm not going to eat the garbage. I could pass it on to somebody else. But we send it away to the last sin eater. We send it away to the last sin eater. (laughs) 